Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey guys, it's Richard Blaze. And I'm Jasmine Blaze. Join us every week for our show on Podcast One called Starving for Attention. We're talking to anyone and everyone in the culinary industry. We're going to hear some spontaneous back-of-house conversation about what it takes to make it in different parts of the food business, global trends, and where the industry overlaps with entertainment. And play along with our games, trivia, and wacky moments. Pull up a seat every Tuesday on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. All right, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, remember to support those that support us here. Uh, we have lots of good uh, swinging sounds out there at doctor.com slash music, and we have the banners at doctor.com and the other podcasts there, and keep the wind in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship, and he'll be happy, I'll be happy, and uh, on we'll go to continue to try to create these good podcasts for you. And today is no exception. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome to the program today Dr. Stephen Hinshaw. He is a professor at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he, Dr. Hinshaw, welcome to the program. Uh, really great to be on board. It really is a privilege to have you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of list some of your interests and your areas of research, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the new book and talk a little bit about how I got to you. And let's start with your research, which includes developmental psychopathology, externalizing behaviors, dimensions and disorders, family peer and neuropsychological risk factors, mechanisms of change via clinical trials, stigma and mental illness. And I know you've been involved with um, Glenn Close's program, Bring Change to Mind. That's right. I'm a scientific advisor for her Bring Change to Mind group doing public service announcements, working with college students, Indiana universities, big four-year anti-stigma program. And the program I'm most associated with is a, a thing called Let's, Let's Erase the Stigma. It's high school clubs for kids with or without mental illnesses to talk about difference and change and reducing the stigma in their community. So it's really exciting work. And Dr. Hinshaw has a new book, and I recommend it highly. It's called Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. It's available, it's available now, essentially, it's probably as this pod, you're listening to this podcast. So please do get it. It's, it's an excellent book. We're going to talk about it in detail. Um, I got to Dr. Hinshaw because I'm a bizarrely nutty consumer of iTunes U uh, material. And I came upon your psychology class. I was it is it on psychopathology or something? I forget even the series because I I think I, it was developmental psychopathology. Yeah, exactly. I, right? I, yeah. And I consumed the iTunes U literally there's no more for me to listen to on iTunes U. I've listened so goddamn much. But yours caught my attention for a multiplicity of reasons. I actually emailed you. I was so moved by your you story That's right. about your uncle. Uh, and and we're going to get into that, and and that's sort of what's chron- that is, is what's chronicled in the book, and your dad and all that. We'll get into this in just a second. And, and by the way, I enjoyed the book tremendously. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, I'm trying to think where I want to start with all this. Oh, I want to start with a little bit more on stigma before we get into your story. Yeah. Um, I am because I want to. It's sort of an opinion of mine, and I want you to challenge me or 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 either agree or or change my opinion. Which is, I'm really bothered by people, by, by people I mean our profession and whatnot, getting overly preoccupied with nomenclature. I, I think an excessive attention to nomenclature around mental illness and addiction is fostering stigma. It's make, it makes everyone uncomfortable. It puts everyone on, you know, p- walking on eggshells. We have to say it's people with addiction, not an addict. Or we can't say addiction anymore. We have to say substance use disorder because addict, that, that. every addict I've ever treated glories in calling themselves junkie and addict. They find it funny. They, the disease itself it has lots of really human character to it. And no one I've ever treated that has that condition has any problem with calling themselves an addict or an alcoholic. Why do you think we are going down the wrong path as it pertains to stigma by getting so preoccupied with nomenclature? Well, I'm really glad you asked because I'm I'm on the fence about this. Uh, Just (laughs) the other week, Bill Maher got into big trouble yeah. on real time by using the N-word, yeah. jokingly, but it's not a joke to a lot of people. Right. There is still today a certain president of the United States who called uh, an adversary, James Comey, a nutcase, yeah. a nut job. Right. That's a good way to demean somebody's political views if they're crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, 
if we're so over-concerned with the exact politically correct language to use, which changes all the time, we might forget about the fact that we still don't have parity of mental health insurance coverage. It's still the law in over half the states in our country that, and I'll, I'll use this phrase advisedly, if you're crazy enough to admit you have a mental illness, there goes your driver's license renewal. You can't run for office or serve on a jury. Oh, and you automatically lose custody of your children. So there's legal and policy issues as well as real human issues that I, th- I would agree with you are more important than the language. Way, way more say. right, way more important. And I, and I like the way you use the word crazy. I mean, every, again, I worked in a psychiatric hospital, probably one, maybe one of the ones your dad or uncle sort of sort of circled around a little bit. We'll talk about that. Uh, in Pasadena, uh, and yep, yep. and, uh, and they would toss around them crazy with great humor. You know what I mean? It's 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 uh, it, I don't know. It's it, it takes the wind out of it a little bit. Yeah, and we now have for the last couple of decades, for the first time in really human history, self help advocacy groups of people who've been in mental hospitals and people who've been labeled crazy. And this is a really good way to eradicate the stigma. And we know. For example, that people who are gay and lesbian have appropriated the word queer, which right. used to be denigrating. Right. I think it's really good if it comes from people who've been victims of injustice and intolerance first. But language is important. You know, don't get me wrong, but it's not the most important issue in this big battle we've got to fight. Now, you mentioned parody, and I, I got to tell you, I've never talked about this, and this is an interesting thing, which is because I'm an internist and an addictionologist, so I worked in a mental health setting for 20 years, and at the same time, parallel with that, I was working in a medical hospital and with medical patients, and I'll be goddamned if I would ask, if I would tell an insurance company that I need another week in the hospital for my patient with septicemia or whatever it might be, or ten, two weeks in the hospital, there was no, it was just, there was nothing, there was no pushback, there was no, you don't know what you're talking about. If I asked for an extra day, for a drug addict that frankly needed six months of treatment, I would get excoriated. And I you knew it. Right. And right. I knew I knew when I had a quote doctor to doctor review, I knew my patient was gonna be discharged by the insurance carrier. They were gonna blame me for the discharge because it was my name on the discharge paper. Boy. They were gonna cut the patient off from the insurance uh, resources and lay that at my feet too because and then tell the patient that their doctor quote didn't give them enough information if the doctor would just tell them what's going on of course they could stay as long as they need i could i tell you until that part and that part is where the clinician judgment is the law of what needs to be carried out as it is in the medical setting until that's the parity forget parity of of resources or parity of coverage until it's parity of treatment of the clinicians and the clinician judgment, there will be no parity in mental health. I agree with you. Yeah. And let's just put this in a bigger frame. Part of the stigma against people with mental illness for much of our country's history was because of treatment in large snake pit involuntary mental facilities. And yeah. My dad was in some of them, and they were horrible. So we close most of them down, deinstitutionalization, a very humanitarian thing to do. But at the same time, if we don't adequately fund community care, A, and B, if we don't have needed hospital treatments for people with serious forms of addiction and mental illness, then how does the public confront mental health conditions these days? On the streets. I walk on in Berkeley, streets. on Telegraph yeah. Ave, or in San Francisco, on Market Street, yeah. or you go to Skid Row in L.A., or wherever you are. Yeah. That's the public face of mental illness, and stigma is exacerbated when people don't get the treatments they need. And, and, and then, and by the way, even even you're, you're singing my tune here, and he, even and and having them on the street gets one of two or three sorts of responses, which is, oh, ugh, they're crazy, stay away, or. We can't. They don't have mental illness. They just need better housing. They don't have mental That's illness. Right. It's either That's denial right. or ostracism. Neither yeah. of which are helpful. Neither <laughs> would. These are not the strategies needed to move the dial. No. Absolutely. So yeah. let's let's get into. First of all, before I get into your dad's story, let, let's. Are you teaching anything that I can pick up on iTunes U anytime soon? <laughs> well, it's really interesting. UC Berkeley has discontinued the sort of general iTunes U policy because of copyright, this and that. I do have a teaching company series, The Great Lecture, The Origins of the Human Mind, (laughs) modestly titled, 
and I'll be doing another one on psychopathology to be taped sometime in the coming year. Okay, so I will be, go. Be, be on the lookout. It's yeah. funny. That's how I got to iTunes. You was through the great courses. Isn't I, that I, I, I yeah. exhausted all the great courses, <laughs> and then I went to iTunes. You and was like, "Oh, I get it for free. This is great." And I've noticed Berkeley shutting down, and I was afraid you were going to tell me that, so I could tell yeah. what was going on. I actually can't even. You can't even giving a lecture in Berkeley. I don't do this, but a lot of my fellow professors do. Oh, you have to play some music over the speaker system as the oh. students are settling in their class. You right. can't do that now because it might be infringement of lyric protection. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I, I, I flipped over to podcasting from iTunes U because I've noticed the kind of paucity of, of, of new yeah. production. Uh, and that's a shame because a carefully thought out, prepared lecture series by an expert is quite different than the meanderings of a podcast. And I'm sorry to see that become less accessible to people. I would agree with you there. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's talk about your, the book and your dad's story and stuff because you told it during the lecture series I heard and it really caught my attention. So let, let's get into it. So imagine, if you will, being back in Pasadena, California in 1936 in late August, and it's sultry. The Santa Ana winds were undoubtedly blowing. And my dad, one of six boys in a family, began to get the idea that the United States wasn't doing enough to fight the growing Nazi and fascist threat. And in fact, he got so enamored of this idea, and he went two or three days with maybe sleeping an hour a night. Obviously, a manic episode was developing, which they didn't know then. He got the idea that he had been placed on the planet to warn the world's leaders of this growing Nazi threat. And in the middle of the night, wandering the sidewalks of Pasadena, he slipped back to the family home on North Oakland Avenue and made his flight because the world's leaders would notice him. He developed the power of flight if he just lifted his arms, they turned into wings, and jumped off the porch roof. Now, he survived this jump, was put in Norwalk Hospital, one of the few state mental hospitals still left in California under a different name now, with a misdiagnosis of schizophrenia being chained to his bed each night. Got out half a year later, earned all A's at Pasadena JC, and his life of utter madness and utter achievement had begun. Well, let's 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 take a little break for some sidebars here. Uh, you know, the the condition of bipolar disorder, mania, hypomania, bipolar 1 or bipolar 2, uh, has lots of assets associated with it, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. You can hyperachieve. You feel endless, boundless energy, and they tend to be very intelligent and creative, and your dad was no exception to that. Bipolar illness is one of the few forms of mental illness, maybe the only one, that's actually positively statistically associated with your socioeconomic status. Oh, that's Those traits do help propel you, but what's and, the and, catch? And one other thing, yeah. the, the other thing your dad represents, which is a, a little discussed fact, is that bipolar patients are more likely to kill themselves when they're in a manic state than in a depressed state. Well, it's really interesting. It's that impulsivity and intolerance of negative affect. It's that manic drive that kind of fuels the motor, and you put that together with some despair. The highest suicide risk we know of of any mental condition is bipolar illness, and in this manic, or what we call mixed episode state, rather than in pure depression per se. You're right. 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 Keep going. So, he flew, he went to Norwalk, he got out. He got got out. Went to college, and then his... Made a uh, terrible decision and went to Stanford rather than UC Berkeley, even though he had a full scholarship to Berkeley. Oh, my goodness. Never forgave him for that once uh, many years later. I was in the world. Went to graduate school during World War II. He was a conscientious objector, but he was also 4F because he'd been six months in a mental hospital. Studied with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein. Pretty good mentorship in learning philosophy. But right after he got his doctoral degree, before the Second World War had ended, he thought he could predict end of the war through telepathy, and he Uh-oh. became paranoid, Ooh. and the police came, and he ended up this time in Philadelphia State Hospital, called Byberry for the district outside Philadelphia where it, where it was located, and received his first insulin coma therapy, received regular beatings at the hands of patients and staff. One of his older brothers, an economist, made the trip up from Washington, D.C. every week to, to visit his, his little brother. Got him on a day pass in the late spring, thinking he was getting better, but my dad stopped the car screaming out in German, and then in English he was being held in a concentration camp. Mm. So my uncle knew that 
his little brother wasn't really getting better that day. It wasn't until decades later that I started researching mental hospitals in the United States. I learned that Byberry had 7,000 men in a unit for about 1,500. Beatings and deaths were quite common, Jesus. and a photograph of Byberry at the time looked eerily like the Life magazine photographs of the liberation of the camps in Europe. So Oof. Dad was psychotic, but there was some metaphorical truth to the thought that he was being housed in a facility that in some ways was a death camp. And that's the legacy of mental illness and stigma. However, Dad got out, became a philosopher and a professor at Ohio State, and we kind of had an idyllic life in Ohio growing up. Went to Ohio State football games. My dad was athletic and smart. My mom taught English at the university. But my sister and I experienced something very unusual. For three months or six months or a year at a time, Dad would disappear as though aliens had come in the house in suburban Columbus at night and had abducted him. No one said where he was. He would come back without warning as though nothing had happened. What we didn't know is that his lead psychiatrist back in Columbus had said, if your children ever learn the reason for your disappearances, your psychotic schizophrenic episodes and your mental hospitalizations, they'll be permanently destroyed. So you and your wife are forbidden from ever raising the topic. Wow. So this is silence and shame and stigma. It wasn't until I was 18, back home from the East Coast, my first spring break from college, that Dad put me down in a seat in a study and said, son, perhaps you should hear something about my life. Well, nice. it's nice that he felt free to do so. That, that I think wrong. he went against doctor's orders finally because I wasn't a child anymore. I yeah. had turned 18 in the interim. And so here I am. Maybe I should major in psychology and learn about mental health. I had a mission. But I was terrified for many years because I didn't tell roommates or anybody else about my dad's psychosis and mental hospitalizations. I did know that that kind of mental illness probably is transmitted by genes. I continued to walk a pretty straight and narrow path thinking that I would be next to go into the next snake pit. So mm. you've got to have communication and good knowledge if you're going to help families deal with mental illness. And we had nothing of that at the time. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here to talk about our friends at True Car. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Now with True Car, of course I'm talking about True Car, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a True Car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yeah, you know, and we talk about all the time. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. Next, True Car, TrueCar.com or True Car app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car Certified Dealer. Have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the truecar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. I want to remind you about our friends at Blinds Galore. They've got a huge 4th of July sale that's happening now, and you can get up to 50% off everything. It's one of their biggest sales of the year, but it's ending soon. Hurry and get to BlindsGalore.com before this sale ends. It ends on Thursday. We have just hung our blinds, and I'm telling you something. They do one thing, and they do it better than anyone. They will give you customer service. They will walk you through the process. Their customer service representatives are excellent. They are specialists. They know how to help you pick the blinds, fit the blinds. They have covered over 2 million windows and counting. Not only will your brand new coverings fit perfectly, but they'll look like they've belonged in your home forever. Don't bother with the stress of going out, and you'll save a ton compared to the big box stores. From start to finish, measuring, picking out the perfect window covering, and installing it, their experts will be there to guide you every step of the way. And I'm telling you, I kid you not, we are so happy with them. Blinds Galore will even help you set up with free samples so you can hold stuff up and figure out exactly what you want. And... 
free shipping on top of the free expertise. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the designer blinds and shades you've always wanted without that designer price tag, especially now with their 4th of July sale. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know I sent you. That is BlindsGalore.com. All right, let's get back to the program. All right, so a couple things I want to sort of pull back to is with the uh, Philadelphia hospitalization. When was that? 1945. Yeah, I, I think 1950 was the nadir of the insanity of the biological psychology or biological uh, of psychiatry. That was when the guys were doing lobotomies in their, oh. you know, in their doctor's office with picks that they carried in their coat. going through the nasal pads. No, they they used ice picks that they carried in their coat pocket, and they ended up, the guy that was most famous for doing it would do it through the orbit of the eye. That's right. And they would would sweep the stupid ice pick around. If the patient did not vomit and become encephalopathic, they felt they hadn't done enough. The disconnection wasn't sufficient. They had to go back and do more. It's the 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 barbarism is unbelievable. And the the interesting thing is, I always wanted to do a, te- a book or a television show, or something about what it must have been like in the 1950s, where here were all these guys that were trained psychoanalytically, who were who were must have been mortified by these new biologists who were like, "Hey, we're doctors, man. We're going to do these these biological interventions." The psychoanalysts must have been going, "But what what?" Didn't we train in the humanity and in the human experience? What about that? And then the neurosurgeons were so freaked out, they wanted nothing to do with it. If you read about it, the neurosurgeons were just like, okay, these guys are out of their minds. We're out. <laughs> they, they couldn't believe what was happening. So what you're talking about is something I write about periodically in the book, and my coming of age and learning about my dad's mental health problems and getting into psychology the field's continuing tendency to be either or. Yeah. It's all family upbringing and psychoanalytic this, or it's all biology and neurology. Yep. It's both and. Yep. We know that the risk for the leading killers in physical health as well as mental health these days, genetic risk is there. Brain circuitry, we need to learn to remediate as we get smarter about the brain. But biology and coping are part of the picture, too. It's not either or. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it's multiple. It's at least two brains, if not multiple brains, that are really uh, at issue most of the time, or how brains right. relate to one another. And you mentioned that he had insulin shock therapy, and people are yeah. aware of electric shock therapy, but they were doing insulin shock, parainfluenza shock, electric. That's right. You shock. give enough insulin, you induce a seizure, and then yep. dad later in the fifties. So he was the fourth patient in the <laughs> United States Jesus. to receive Thorazine, this new drug out of France in 1953 that would cure schizophrenia by shutting off the voices, etc., etc. And his older brother, another older brother, Robert, my Uncle Bob, got him the prescription. He was the first out of the house back in Pasadena in 36, seeing his little brother splayed on the sidewalk below the porch roof. He decided, he told me, to become a psychiatrist and a psychologist oh, within that, a month, and he did. That's right. He, went, that, he got an MD and a PhD and devoted his life to mental health because of the experience of seeing his little brother almost having killed himself. He was the one I wrote you about that I expected that's I right. saw at the hospital because I worked at this psychiatric hospital that had been there for 100 years, right down the street from where you live, frankly. Exactly. Uh, and I just uh, I must have come across him somewhere because he practiced. I, till, I bet you did. Yeah. yeah. When did he practice until? So he uh, was an avid psychologist and psychiatrist, had a practice, but until the late 70s when he died of substance abuse. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot he of that. He had <laughs> migraines. A yeah. lot of all the guys in the family had migraines. He could prescribe painkillers for himself, started to inject, and uh, lost his leg, and his kidneys failed. I saw a so lot of that in psychiatrists. The Hinshaw family has a lot of high achievement and a lot of really serious devastating mental health and addiction conditions all rolled into one. Yeah, I, and I, I, you know, when you see these conditions and you have an intimate awareness and relationship with them, it's mystifying to me that we have to treat them differently than any other organ system. Why is the brain different than the heart? That's what I, you know, why do we have to treat things above the neck different than things below the neck? It, it's, well, admittedly, it's, the brain's the most complex thing we know of in the universe, at least our corner of it, Yeah, 100 trillion synapses. We don't know as much about it as we do the heart and the lungs and the, the liver, etc. But it's an organ, and it's the organ that's the seed of our emotions and feelings and self. But uh, we've got to integrate our treatments much better than we have. That's all I can say. 
Have you seen the work recently? You talked about the integration of the the brain and the seat of emotions and whatnot. Is it Elizabeth Barrett? Is that her name? She's written this new book about uh, how emotions are made, or I think it's called something like that. So are you talking about Lisa Feldman Barrett? That's what I'm talking about. That's right. Uh, She's a known cognitive and affective psychologist. Her views are something at odds with some of my Berkeley and UCSF mates, Paul Ekman and Bob Levinson. Yeah. Are there specific emotions wired into the brain, or is there sort of a general alarm system and then culture infuses what the emotional meaning is? The debate continues unchecked, but uh, her book's a provocative book. I think it just came out a month or two ago. Yeah, I, I read it, and, and it, and it. Uh, I'm going to interview her, and, and she Good. talks about the brain being a a future predicting organ. The, yep. That the patterns are sort of uh, anticipatory in a sense. That's right. And, that's and what, she, yeah, but, well, but, that's what may distinguish us from the other primates. Not so much tools and fire, but our ability to time travel and project into the future. That's yeah. probably why we've made it so far as a species. Well, uh, yes. And, and though she, there's two things she leaves out of, of a general character that, that I, I want to take issue with. And that's the reason I brought her up, because it's where I find myself doing a lot of thinking and cogitating these days. Uh, and one is she completely leaves out the effect of one brain on another. She really doesn't really talk about that. That's number one. And number two, f- the fact that that the brain is embedded in a body, that there is all this tremendous neuronal tissue, the parasympathetic system, you know, these gigantic webs that we don't really know what they're doing, what they're processing. There's there's a gangling along our spinal cord at every level, processing the sympathetic output. We have no idea what that how that really works. She leaves and and in in some sense, feelings are a bodily based experience, if not completely. Absolutely, yeah. She That's leaves the James that. Lang theory of emotion. This is going back to the the the, the heart of psychology and its history. Yeah. In fact, you know, is the singularity upon us? Will artificial intelligence take over? There's no such thing as a brain disconnected from a body. It right. doesn't work That's in right. practice. That's yeah, right. You're absolutely it, it, right. It, and I, I, you know, I believe that on some level, the, the right brain being the sort of the more holistic map of what's going on in our body, I suspect that that's where a lot of the brain-brain interaction is going on on a non-conscious level that we're just – it's hard to figure out yet, but I mean, we have a gigantic parasympathetic plexus in our, you know, sort of in front of our stomach. We have one in our pelvis. We have, we have yeah. all in front of our heart. And and the other thing, you know, uh, are you familiar with Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory? I sure am. I read that as a grad student, and right. it's still prominent uh, forty years later. I, I had dinner with Stephen Porges, and oh my God, was it exciting to talk to him? He, he really is. You know, believes there's a lot of information. The, the vagus nerve is we I, in medical school we were taught it was an efferent that there's a drug, it was an outflowing nerve that slowed the heart down. That was it. That's all we were and did some stuff on the guts. Maybe changed the gut a little bit, uh, but that was about it. And he has this tremendous body of information about the information coming back through the vagus. He says that there is a homunculus. Uh, at the level of the nucleus of the vagus, there's three nuclei there. One is called the nucleus tractus solitaris. And he says in the tractus solitaris, there's a homunculus. And the, much like we have a sensory homunculus, we have a parasympathetic homunculus in our brainstem. And I thought, really oh, oh, my God, that's fascinating. Yeah, what yeah. we still don't know would fill every library ever built. So yeah, and that's yeah. what's exciting and interesting. And, and uh, you know, whenever somebody declares, here's how it is, just be, be careful. Be, be, <laughs> yeah, a caveat emptor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, it's time for me to talk about our friends at Alliant. One of the really exciting parts of working in recovery is not just seeing patients get well, but seeing them get, well, amazing and actually go off and become mental health professionals themselves. The field of psychology is vast. The need for competent practitioners has never been greater. So if you're considering this rewarding career, I suggest you consider the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant University. I've known Alliant University for years now. I'm proud to have spoken at their events in the past. It was founded in 1969, boasts an alumni network of nearly 50,000 individuals working worldwide, and it's fostered many of today's mental health pioneers, authors, and advocates. CSPP at Alliant University hosts both on-ground and online programs in business psychology, marriage and family therapy, and clinical counseling. They also offer an APA-accredited doctoral program in clinical psychology that allows for specialization in child psychology, clinical forensic psychology, and integrated psychology. 
Their faculty is made up of industry leaders and former faculty names include the likes of Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Viktor Frankl, some of the true fathers of modern psychology. So for more information on the School of Professional Psychology at Alliant, click the Alliant banner on my site or visit alliant.edu. That is A-L-L-I-A-N-T dot E-D-U. Well, the rising cost of prescription medication is uh, no joking matter. It concerns me not just as a doctor, but as a patient. That's right. Listen, I have to take a bunch of medications for my cholesterol and having prostate cancer and whatnot and my blood pressure. But even with good insurance, the price of medication has become a big concern for most of us. I know, geez, when I see the, well, when I see the actual price of the medication as well as what I have to pay, I am stunned every time I have a prescription refilled. And with patients, they complain, I have to worry about it. It's an issue. Well, let me introduce you to RefillWise, R-E-F-I-L-L-W-I-S-E, a prescription saving card that you can get on your phone right now for free. No sign up, no wait time. Save on your next prescription. Simply use your mobile phone, text DREW, D-R-E-W, to the number 22822. Again, that's DREW to 22822, and you will immediately receive your Refill Wise prescription savings card ready to use. Just show it to your pharmacist and see how much you can save for your prescriptions. It works with major pharmaceutical companies to establish discounts on the price of over 6,000 commonly used medication. Right now, more than 1 million people are using this card. The average savings 40% and some up to 80%. I use it. So you have medication not covered by insurance. Make sure to check the refill-wise price at your pharmacy. Even if you have insurance, the refill-wise discount might actually be bigger. So it always pays a check before you check out. Also, I'm thrilled that for every new user, RefillWise will donate $1 to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, a charity that is very dear to my heart. Check them out at pcf.org. To learn more about RefillWise and see if your medication could be covered, check out RefillWise.com. But to start saving right now, just text DREW, that's Drew, to the number 22822. Again, that's 22822. Message and data rates may apply. And it's time to get back to the program. Uh, and then now you brought up the the horrors of uh, state hospitals of, of what of what they became. Let's face it. And then That's I right. brought up the horrors of the bio- biologists, the biological psychiatrists. Um, and then there was sort of a, a sociological movement. I, I may be going too far into the obscure, but you know, Michel Foucault took aim at, at mental health hospitals too, essentially saying that mental illness is caused by people who sort of have an expectation of a formulation of mental illness, which I find just total BS. But I was just wondering if you had any response to his philosophy. Well, uh, more locally, um, a chef, the famous sociologist at UC Santa Barbara, posited primary labeling theory back in the 60s, sort of different from Foucault, but on the same track. A lot of people behave deviantly in a society, but only a certain subset, those kids who get caught, breaking and entering, become delinquent. Those whose uh, delusions uh, get noticed by leaders of the tribe. And it's the act of labeling that actually creates the mental illness. Well, to me, that is so far-fetched as to be unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, be- I mean, we, we know enough about genes and we know enough about brains, although we've still got much more to discover, to know that kids with ADHD that I study a lot, adults with schizophrenia or bipolar illness or depression or even PTSD, some people are more vulnerable than others. Genes are, not everybody's got the same genes. But it's how those genes develop in utero and how epigenesis works and early experiences in trauma that shape the person out of that genetic tendency. Now, secondary labeling theory that Chef and other sociologists have posited says, look, If you do get caught and you do get thrown into the slammer, if you're a delinquent or a mental hospital, that didn't cause the deviant behavior in the first place, but it's certainly going to create a career that it's hard to come back from. And I think secondary labeling theory is much more reasonable and much more accurate. Yeah, it creates an identity. It creates, again, a sense of self in a certain context. And, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Society's expectations that you're flawed, et cetera. Right, Right, right. What what um I you know I, I also spend because I guess I, I sort of come across it all the time, but particularly with addicts these days, who who to my humble estimation are bidding to regulate their emotional states. That's really what starts them off on on this yep. process. Uh, and trauma is the reason they're unregulated. Do you do much work in trauma? Well, I'm not a trauma expert, but I'll tell you an interesting finding that we've uncovered in my more 
straight-laced psychology, clinical psychology work with kids with ADHD. 20 years ago, we started to study girls with ADHD. No one believed that girls really had ADHD. I beg to differ. NIMH gave me the millions of dollars, and we've worked with them and their families for the last 20 years. Girls really have attention deficits and impulsivity. It's really serious business when they do. What do we know about this? Girls with ADHD, if they have impulsivity, are at high risk by their teens and 20s for attempting their own lives Hmm. and for cutting and self-mutilation. That's interesting. We found four times the risk in these impulsive girls with ADHD as in our comparison group. Was was there any, was ADHD the cause or another symptom brought out by something else? Well, that's the $64 billion question because we hadn't studied them from conception, right? But here's what I'm going to add to the argument. One of the grad students in my lab, who's now a postdoc at UCLA, Maya Gundelman, got a big team of coders that went through hundreds of girls in our study. They were blind to who was who, who had ADHD, who didn't, and coded for the presence of physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect, maltreatment and trauma early in the kids' lives. Yeah. If you had the impulsive form of ADHD, which has a high genetic liability, and you experience one or more of those forms of maltreatment, now the risk of attempting your life by the age of 20 was nearly 40%. That makes sense to me. It's very much like bipolar disorder, well, one of the most heritable conditions known. Yeah. My dad was maltreated by a stepmother. Yeah. One plus one often equals four. It's the synergy of biology and experience that can create the worst outcome. It's funny. We're in psychopathy now. They're seeing that you, know, you can be a compensated psychopath, but if you have some sort of serious abuse, you're going to be a problem. It's, it's much harder to play catch-up ball if that's in the, in the history, too. That's right. Do you have any newer ideas about treatment, intervention, what kinds of treatments that uh, are coming down the line? For kids, for adults, well, for anybody? I what guess I, I'm think I'm, I was thinking more in terms of sort of categories of treatment. Is, are there any new sort of modalities of treatment that you're excited about? Well... So one of the big uh, crazes, but it's an evidence-based craze, so it's a good one in the last few decades, has been behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Change your thinking pattern, change your emotion patterns, and then you can not have to do psychoanalysis for years or not necessarily have to medicate a person sometimes into oblivion. But not everybody can change completely his or her thinking patterns and emotional patterns that have been going on for a long time. So what's called the third wave from behavior therapy to cognitive behavior therapy, now dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. Part of the game is to understand there's some things you can change and some things you can't. It's like the old Gestalt prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And being philosophical about what you can set for yourself as a therapeutic goal and what you're going to have to live with and accept in yourself and not berate yourself and this is, goes for couple therapy as well. Mm. Can you change everything about your partner? No. What do you learn to live with, but what's essential for your physical and mental health to change? I think this third wave of cognitive therapies, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's an interesting, it brings in acceptance as well as change. And I think that's one of the essential dialectics for all of us as human beings. Well, it, it also brings in philosophy, which I think yes. is important. I, I, I found myself ruminating there too because it, it, it's you know what are we doing <laughs> what's our what's our plan here what, what, what are we up to do we want to save lives do we want people to be perfectly flourishing do we want them to feel great all the time what, what's our plan <laughs> what's and and i'm sort of interested in human flourishing and you sort of need to have good enough health to flourish but you don't have to have to be perfectly regular. you don't have to yeah. have, there's no such thing as perfect parenting there's no such thing as perfect state of positive mental health. We know that positive affect leads to expansiveness and creativity. Yeah. We're kind of wired to look for the negative. We wouldn't have survived on the savannas unless we you know, had these anxiety tendencies, etc. Yeah. So an interesting, though, counterpoint to what you're saying is back to some of the work I do in ADHD. One of the studies we published a couple of decades ago in the eminent journal Child Development was not what goes wrong. This was boys with, with ADHD back then. But what could go right? What predicted 
whether they were really well liked by their classmates and summer camp mates in these summer camps we'd create. Who was socially competent? Long story short, we measured parenting, both observing it and getting parents to sort of rate how they parented. Parenting, especially what's called authoritative parenting, it's that blend of warmth and limit setting and reasoning with the kid in between times, didn't matter one bit for predicting the social competence of our typically developing comparison group. There's a million ways to get socially competent if, if you're a typically developing kid. Parenting isn't that crucial. For our boys with ADHD, the only factor that actually lifted them above the bar into social competence was those parents who fought tooth and nail to maintain their warmth and the limits with these guys. Hmm. Now, we didn't randomly assign from birth boys with ADHD to one home versus another. The Ethical Review Board at Berkeley had a few problems with that strategy. Right. But we know that from recent work from the United Kingdom, in adoption samples, the same thing is true. Kids with problem behaviors like ADHD elicit difficult parenting strategies, but those parenting strategies have a life of their own, and they predict problems decades later for the kids, even taking into account the kids' early problems. It's not genes, it's not environment, it's the combination of the two. I mean, I, I, I say this all the time to my students and myself, and I say it in another kind of madness, but there's people in our field, Dr. Drew, who will, to their dying day, take one side versus another. I know, well, I know. And it's to the detriment of knowledge. Well, and, and, and think about how different what you're advocating is in terms of doing this very hard work of holding the line of boundaries and being warm and available for a, for a difficult person right. versus just give them a pill. <laughs> I mean, it could not be two more opposite sorts of uh, phenomenologies, really. If you want to improve ADHD symptoms quickly, often in 20 minutes, about 80% of the time, the stimulant medications and some of the alternatives do a really good job of that. Now, you've got to watch for side effects. You have to monitor it carefully. Yeah. But in our own research in the big multi-center study I was a part of back in the 90s and aughts, if your goal, alternatively, is to teach better reading and math skills and to teach better social skills and to get families to be more authoritative in their parenting and to put a cap on depression and conduct problems, you've got to combine medication with yeah. a school and home and social skills-based integrative therapy. There's no two ways about it. Right. Pills don't teach you competence. Right, not one or the other. And, yeah. and you, you mentioned that there being an, a, a I forget the language you use there, but you talked about there being something between genetics and the environment. Epigenetics. Yeah, yes. epigenetics, but it, right, uh, which is another layer. But I'm not sure I have time to get into. But but there's another thing I was going to throw in the mix of this too, which uh, I heard Peter Fonagy say once. He said that attachment can be a mediator between – if a, a secure attachment as opposed to a disorganized attachment, for instance, can be a mediator between the genes and the environment. Well, it's exactly right. I mean, we're all born with our genotypes in place, but early experience, both chemical experience and experience experience, modifies the genome. This is what epigenetics, epi means upon, upon the gene, are histones and it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get – yeah, I'm going to avoid the biology details, because – it, it tells the genes whether to express or not. That's right, how the genes are regulated or expressed. That's right. Yeah. We, we have the same genes, in, in D, same DNA in every cell of yeah. our bodies. Yeah. But what turns into a liver or a brain, it's epigenetic, it's experience-based expression and regulation of genes. Yeah. And attachment is one of the regulatory systems that – promotes genetic expression. Absolutely. And by attachment, we, we're talking about you know ha the quality of the relationship. But again, this, we're not going to get deep into this, but there right. are previous uh, – I know I've done another previous podcast on attachment. Uh, the, the relationship uh, with typically the mom and, and sort of how that relationship is negotiated and how sort of uh, consistent it is, let's say. How, how responsive the parent is because – the only reason we survived as a species is we've got this terribly long period of childhood when kids are unruly and their brains take a long time to develop. And so all primates, including humans, if the parent's separated from the child, the child's distressed, and the parent responds to the child's cries. It's the consistency and responsiveness of the parent that constitutes the attachment bond that 
independent of whatever genes the kid carries, is predictive of a lot of important outcomes in life. I did a, a podcast 65 with Alan Shore, who gets into the neurobiology of attachment. Also, Sue Johnson, we did a couple with her. Gary, you could talk, get those yeah, up there. Yeah. Um, to, so, before, last thing I want to go through real quickly, and I know this isn't you particularly, but I'm sure you're familiar with this. Your colleague, you said Paul Eichmann, right? Yeah. Who, who brought the attention, uh, 15, number 15 was Sue Johnson, show 15. I can't believe it was all the way that long ago. Uh, but um, the attention back to a, a emotion and emotional expression. You want to give me a couple minutes on that and how that, that sort of paradigm shift occurred and where it is now? So the big news when I was an undergraduate and graduate student was that in the 50s and 60s, even in the late 40s, post-World War II, information age, Alan Turing, the cognitive revolution. It wasn't just stimulus response and reinforcers. The brain's a cognitive organ, and we think and we strategize, and so this transformed psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science. But then it was people like Paul Ekman in the 60s and 70s and 80s who said, what really... (laughs) how we're similar to other animals, but we can develop regulation strategies and be different, is in emotion and how we regulate emotion. And so Paul went to uh, all corners of the earth to find that there's a very consistent pattern of emotional expression and recognition independent of language and culture. There may be a kind of evolutionary backbone of emotion. And what are emotions? And and, and, uh, and, uh... They're action tendencies. They predict what we're going to do in and, various situations. And that was right. mentioned even in the descent of man. Uh, the ascent. What is? What was? Uh, of course, the Darwin's the ascent of man. Ascent of man. Yeah. Right. So the descent right. of man. Yeah, that's right. That's, right. <laughs> that's what we're in now. <laughs> we're, yeah, involved, we're involved with that presently. The, ascent was the PBS series. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and he found these various patterns, which I, I find to be very compelling. And I was just glad. I was just so glad he brought the the focus back to emotions because. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about healing someone psychotherapeutically or a couple or a group or a family or kids in school. It's the emotional responses that get people into hot water and that also create sustaining loving relationships. It's not just cognition, it's emotion. So this is this has kind of taken over the field by storm in the last couple of decades. And, and you mentioned DBT and acceptance and commitment therapies, but whenever they study the efficacy of a therapist, it, it, it ends up being not so much the modality they're using as the empathy and connectedness of the therapist, right? Carl Rogers was right all yeah. of that time ago. Yeah. It, I mean, I think there are specific therapeutic techniques that really help yes. for some forms of mental illness. Yes. But the main finding in the long history of psychotherapy research is good therapists and good therapeutic relationships predict better outcomes regardless of the specific strategy. Brains, Still to this day. Yeah, yeah, brains heal brains. And, and then you, you, I know one of your areas of interest is schizophrenia. I, I've done some uh, interviews with people that have been doing cognitive behavioral therapy with schizophrenics, and I've been uh, impressed by how effective that has been in helping the uh, it's it's almost like the way DBT works for a borderline. It's like helps them realize their symptomatology and and correct in, in real time. It's not probably when someone's in the middle of a paranoid delusion, whether that's from schizophrenia or from a severe manic episode. CBT is probably not going to reach the person well during that moment. No, but during the rest of the person's life, as episodes wax and wane, the euthymic period for bipolar disorder. People can learn to gauge themselves, assess themselves, cognize, put themselves in various situations, change their thinking strategies. CBT, in, for people with bipolar or disorder between episodes, for people with schizophrenia once thought to be incurable only in, uh, unless you did a lobotomy, right. these are evidence-based treatments. They, we don't have cures yet for mental health conditions, but we sure can treat them with evidence-based approaches. And then, then finally... Hmm. I guess let, I'll, I'll, I want you to finish with this sort of thing and back to philosophy a little bit. Um, you know, in all probability, uh, the people that we sort of either deny or disdain that are homeless today, a, a significant percentage of those people probably were the frontiersmen of, of one day. You know what I mean? They, they certainly, in a different sociological, historical context, these things had certain assets and liabilities attached to them, and then not strictly liabilities. 
and and I just think the disdain that we have for it these days is 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 just so ridiculous. It's, Back to it's, the, be, it's beyond rationality. We, uh, we're cutting off human capital. Everybody loses yeah. when we continue to stigmatize. So, you know, back to kind of conclude, there are certain genes that predispose people to be impulsive and have ADHD. Those genes are the genes that predicted when the Bering Strait was a landmass 15,000 years ago who migrated That's right. out of Asia to right. finally, <laughs> what's today, Alaska, Canada, yeah. California, and down below... Maybe the real cause of something like ADHD is compulsory education. Uh. Because the human brain didn't evolve to learn to read or sit still. So I'm saying that half tongue in cheek. Yeah. What might have been very healthy genetically born tendencies in an earlier era of our species may be called mental illnesses now because we all lead, lead sedentary lives in mega urban environments. It gets you away from this reductionist genetic biological thinking that mental illness and addiction is caused by bad genes. Yeah, I yeah. think that's just, it's a priori the wrong way to think. Yeah. I just think we need to be a little more creative and philosophical in our thinking about the human experience, and, and I, I'm glad to hear that people are heading that direction. Again, the and book... My, my and my dad was a philosopher until I, his dying day. Fascinating. He was very philosophical about the episodes and hospitalizations he'd endured, and he said, I would have never traded any experience, and I learned from everyone. I think that kind of philosophical attitude I've, I've aspired to my whole life. And that, that is chronicled in Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. You also give a nice little, uh, I don't know, I felt like I was back in Southern California in the 1940s and 50s. It was a nice little survey or, or journey into all that time. Well, you sometimes writing a memoir have to get novelist chops to yeah, try to good. recreate environment. It was That's great. Good. I mean, somebody's lived there most of my life. It's been it was it was uh, it came to life for me. It really did. That's so great. I appreciate it. Well, Stephen, is there anywhere else that people can find you? Do you want them to go to a website or, or I guess the great courses? We can go there. Anywhere else? Go to the great courses, the teaching company. Yeah. Stephen with a ph. I should change it to Stephen to be yeah. more like Steph Curry of the Warriors. That is another story. Stephen with a ph Hinshaw author dot com is my author website. All right. You can just Google Stephen with a ph Hinshaw H I N S H A W and find uh, Wikipedia pages and lab websites and everything else. Well, great! It's been a great privilege. I've looked forward to this conversation for a long time, and I appreciate you spending some time with me. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure to have been on, and I wish we could go a few more hours. Well, I may bring you back, so sit, hang tight as as uh, I sure will. as the course of this book unfolds, and who knows what it'll trigger in, in, out in the world. We'll 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 deal with it if we if the opportunity arises. Thanks a million. All right, Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, thank you so much. Bye. All right, thank you, everybody. It's a privilege to have spoken today with Dr. Hinshaw. Do get that book, Another Kind of Madness, and I'll see you next time.